0: I want to go to an adventure camp and climb a rock and they can bring my body back, you know. Well, hello. What a wonderful day. It's a little nippy. First day of March, but it's okay. We're good. We want to talk about family today, family ties. And the reason is that the story that we're in of Abram, soon to be Abraham, is about Abram, who's the old guy with his nephew Lot, and they've gone on sort of a grand adventure. They've come from over near Baghdad, come up over around the Fertile Crescent, down through Palestine. They've been to Egypt, and some stuff happened there, as you've heard. Now they're coming back, and they got lots of sheep and lots of challenges and lots of stuff going on. And so here's how the message is going to go in the next 27 minutes. You ready for this? It's going to be small conflict— Big conflict, resolution. I love resolution. I love for my TV shows to have a good ending. This has a good ending. Okay, I just so you can relax and text somebody. Just, uh, <laughs> But you know, you know how families are. You can't choose your relatives. Well, you sort of choose your relatives. But when, sir, when you married that cute girl, when you, when, you, when you did that, you thought you were just marrying the cute girl. You had no idea that the whole clan was coming. Strange Uncle Harry came with her. You didn't know that. Okay? And uh, Ruth and I, years ago, she's a... Uh, her, her father's a Blakely and my mother's a Boyd. Those are Ulster Scots names. That's Scots-Irish in the north of Scotland and, or Ireland. And we were in Ireland a few years ago and we were checking out genealogy. You know, just trying to... Of course, most of the people who came to this country were poor. We were illiterate. We didn't write back. So if you go back to Ireland and you just pick... That name, like Blakely or Boyd, out of the phone book, you can like eat your way across Ireland. This ah, oh, our people are here. Come on over, you know. And and so, but every time they'd say, "What are you doing here?" We'd say, "Well, we're we're, we're just checking out our our ancestors." And they'd all say the same thing, "Are you are you sure you want to be doing that?" <laughs> yeah, I said, "Well, we're looking for the money," you know. And I. There there was money, but it all belonged to pirates and horse thieves, you know, that's, and some of our people are in Australia and stuff, so some of us have infamous relatives and some have famous relatives, back in 1964 there was a movie made about a Colorado woman, it was called The Unsinkable Molly Brown, anybody ever hear of that, it was a great musical, and it was on Broadway, and uh, Debbie Reynolds starred, she's the icon, and that guy, Next to her, Harv Presnell, tremendous voice, unbelievable voice, and Harv Presnell is my wife Ruth's cousin. I just wanted you to know that, but there wasn't any money there either. So so here's Abram and his clan. They're coming up. They've got all these cattle. They've got challenges, and, you know, traveling with relatives can be a challenge. I mean, We, when we pastored in Urbana, Illinois in the 60s and 70s, we had these four little kids. And and every other year we would drive to California to see family. And so we'd load the kids up in the back of the station wagon. That's a vehicle that used to be around a lot. And we we loaded them up. And we'd leave at 9 o'clock on a Sunday night because we had Sunday night church. And we'd drive all through the night until 3 o'clock the next afternoon when we'd get to a little town east of Amarillo called Shamrock, Texas. And we stopped there because they had a swimming pool at the old ranger motel and it had a slide. And then we'd get up at 3 in the morning and drive through the night again because, you know, kids are asleep at night. Sometimes I was asleep at night trying to drive all the way through. But you can't, you can't imagine being with all those relatives all this time with animals and all, all this. And so they get here and they have a challenge. Genesis, the 13th chapter, the 5th verse reads like this. Now Lot who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and lots. The Canaanites and Perizzites, two tribal groups, were also living in the land at that time. When you look at a narrative like this, two things. One is, what are the facts? This is just the story. This is how it happened. But for us, as we look back, we say, okay, in this narrative, what are the lessons To be learned, and that's what we want to look at. First lesson is point one in your bulletin is that conflict is a part of life. Conflict is a part of life. One of the reasons you know you're alive is that you have conflicts. You say, Well, that's not good news. Well, conflict is neutral. How you respond to conflict, that's the challenge. I mean, you know, that, that's just how it, how it works. And the closer you are, the closer you cluster, and that's why we talk a little bit about families, is the chances for conflict are greater. Some years ago, I picked up a book by a fellow named um, Dr. David Augsburg, who's a Mennonite brother. And he his book was called Caring Enough to Confront. He had five ways to deal with conflict in this book. And I've used this for years, and I keep trying to practice these things. But... There are five ways to deal with conflict according to him. The first one is this. I'll get you. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm going to get you. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands as to how many of you have a Ph.D. in that particular point. But I'm saying we know that one. That's our default position. You're wrong. I'm right. I'm going to get you. Second point is I'll give in. You're always right. I'm always wrong. I'm just going to go curl up here in the prenatal position And just eat a few worms over here in the corner because I'm just a terrible person. The person who always gives in in a conflict or a relationship is not helping the relationship. You hear me? The person who always gives in, who's always, quote, the wrong person, doesn't help. Third one is I'll get out. That's the way you're going to be. I'm dust. I'm out of here. I was speaking at a missions conference in Cartagena, Colombia some years ago, and I happened to mention this. A guy came to me afterwards and said, I was just going through Alabama. and I was speaking in a church, and he said they were honoring a couple that had been married 75 years. You've got to be old. I mean, to, you know, I'm old, but I mean really old. And they got the couple up there, and the pastor asks the man, sir, to what do you owe the longevity of this relationship? And he said, well, <clears throat> me and Ma, when we first married, we had this here agreement that if we ever got into it and it really got hot and heavy, we were going after each other. I'd just go out and sit on a porch until things cooled down. And then I'd go back on in there and we just figure it on out. He said, I guess this marriage has lasted this long because of all that great outdoor living. <laughs> I love that story. And, and that's even a true story. That's a true story. <laughs> Fourth way is let's compromise. I'll give a little, you give a little. We've all done that. But the fifth way and the most biblical way is to affirm the person and confront the issue. Affirm the person and confront the issue. I tend to confront the person. You you probably don't like this, but uh, who's the dummy who left the Diet Pepsi on the end table in the front room? Going to make a circle on the table? You know, I assassinate someone's character for one calorie, you know. (laughs) But Jesus' style is different than that. Here's a biblical model of affirming a person confronting the issue. You can find this in the 8th chapter of John. These religious types, these legalists who who don't care about people, but they really want to knock Jesus off because he's got real authority and authenticity and power. They find this woman, as it says, in the very act of adultery. I don't know how they do this, but they find this woman, bring her, stand her before Jesus, and she's going to be cannon fodder, okay? She's going to be the example. And this is what they say to Jesus. They say, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were trying to trap him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger, finger in the dirt. When they kept on questioning him, because he's not paying attention, say, said, well, come on, give us an answer. What, what's going on here? When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. Fire away, boys. Hit her with the rocks. Go ahead. And then he doesn't, he just gets back down in the dirt and keeps writing. We don't know what he wrote. Maybe he wrote names and addresses of people. Maybe all their sins, you know, I don't know. At this, when he said that to them, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, they had more sins. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, sir. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. He affirms the person, confronts the issue. Can you see this in your mind? These guys are here. They don't care about her. They're willing to kill her to take Jesus out. Okay? So they got rocks ready to go. I'm sure there's a big crowd because, I mean, onlookers, this is going to be quite the deal. You know, It's like the biggest deal of the day. And they're all there. And he challenges them, go ahead, hit her with rocks if you've not sinned. And it says that they, from the eldest to the youngest, they leave. They just, in my mind, they drop their rocks. And so when Jesus stands back up, all he sees is a circle of rocks on the ground and a larger crowd out there. And he says to her, who condemns you? And you can see her hesitantly. She's been trashed her whole life. And she just looks around and says, well, nobody. And I see a smile start spreading across Jesus' face. And he says, me neither. Go and don't do that anymore. Or in fourth paraphrase, you are a great lady. And that's not the kind of thing great ladies do. Affirm the person. Confront the issue. And the story goes on. Verse 8. So Abram said to the Lord, to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we're close relatives. Their people are having fights. The peeps, you know, they're having fights. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around, saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zoar was well watered. Those of you who are ranchers or farmers, this is bottom land. This is rich, loamy land. The Jordan River comes down through there. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, that's to the west toward the Mediterranean, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever." I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tent. There he built an altar to the Lord. Abram confronts the issue by affirming Lot. Abram confronts the issue by affirming Lot. He says, you go first. You choose first. I love choosing first. I got these options. I get to choose first. He says, You choose first. I was, um, had the privilege this past Monday night and Tuesday during the day of being in Charlottesville, Virginia, at the University of Virginia, with three friends. These three friends are extremely successful by almost any standards. One is a military person, one's a political person, one's a business person. Between them, they have almost 200 years of experience, of life and experience. And they're sitting on the platform being interviewed by these folks. I'm over here because I'm carrying bags. And here are 18, 19, 20-year-olds listening to these guys talk about the choices they've made in their lives. What was a good choice? What was a bad choice? What did I, what happened when I had choices taken away from me? What was the loneliest, lowest moment in my life? Things like this. Because how you choose makes all the difference in what happens down the road. So Lot chooses. And all of you real estate folks, you know this. The mantra for real estate is location, location, location. So he chose the best location in terms of quality of the dirt, quality of the land. His problem was he had the best land In the worst neighborhood. He had bad neighbors. You don't want to have a great house and bad neighbors. But that's what happened. Point two on your bulletin. Generosity wins the day. Generosity wins the day. Here's here's Abram says, you go first. Go ahead. 1 Peter 4, 8 and 10, 8 through 10 says it this way. A generous distributors, as generous distributors of God's manifold grace. Put your gifts at the service of one another, each in the measure he has received. He's saying, you've been given all this as generous recipients and distributors of God's manifold grace. Put your gifts at the service of one another. See, generosity is not just about dollars, not just about bucks. It's about time and insights and accessibility and story. As I sat there in the audience with those 700 University of Virginia students, these are people who are going to be senators and all this kind of stuff down the road. These are bright cats. And they're listening to these guys tell their stories, how generous it was of them to tell their stories. Because when you tell your story, that's what you have. It's, it's, it's the one place in your life you don't compete. Okay? Everybody gets an A in story. When you tell your story, it's a Velcro ribbon that goes out there and people can attach themselves to it. They can identify with it. A couple of years ago, we were with the grandkids in California and we were driving. We were going to meet several cars of us, going to meet at a place for lunch. And Sammy, who's now going to be 16 in April, he was 14. He was in the backseat with a couple of cousins. And he said, Grandpa, tell us a story about when you were young. And I started telling stories. And uh, we're driving up I-5. I got so engrossed. And telling the story that I overshot our destination by 16 miles. That's what you call engaged in storytelling. But the point is generosity with your money, with your time, with your insights, with your story is is an active offense. This isn't a defensive position. This is Peyton Manning on his best Monday night football game. Okay. Generosity sets a tone. When you have generous people in the room. It, it changes the character of the room. Generosity is generational, I think. You have generous parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles and the kids are hanging out. They think that's the way you do life. They think that's the way you do business. It is the way you do business. It's, it's, it's your default position to be generous. And generosity says you choose first. It's, it's, it's like the fruit of the Spirit. That's listed in Galatians where it says the fruit of the spirit is love and patience and kindness and, and they had this great tagline that says against such there is no law. I love that. Throw that guy in jail for 90 days. He's way too patient. You know, you got no laws against this. You got no that guy's just too generous. He's giving away money like there's no tomorrow. Let's let's charge him with something. Against such there is no law. I love this story. I've told this story to you before, but I don't care. <laughs> and I'm counting on your memory loss. So, This guy drives in a difficult part of town, a challenging part of the inner city. He's got a fancy new car. And he drives up, pulls up in front of a drugstore, and there's a kid standing out in front. He gets out, and he sees the kid eyeing his wheels, you know. And he clicks it shut So, he, and uh, starts toward the door. And the boy looks at him and says, cool car, mister. And he says, well, thank you, son. He said, "Uh, where'd you get that car? He said, well, you're not going to believe this. He said, well, try me. He said, "My, um, my brother gave it to me. He said, get out. He said, no. No, my brother gave it to me as a gift. And the kid looked at the guy and looked at the car, looked back at the guy and said, oh, wow, mister. That's the kind of brother I'd like to be. Here is the. Here is the heart of God. I look at Jesus and I say, that's the kind of person I'd like to be. I look at Abram and say, that's the kind of person I want to be. And then we go on to chapter 14. And the first ten verses or so are all about kings with long names and they're squabbling, fighting each other. And so I'm not going to read that part because I won't get the names right and you won't care. So (laughs) let's go to verse 11. These four kings line up against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and they're going after them. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom-Gomorrah and, and all their food. Then they went away and they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Anar, and all of whom were allied, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. That's a city up in the north. I love this, that he says he's got 318 318 guys. It's so precise. One of the reasons I believe the Bible is it's precise. You get to the Gospels and Jesus goes and does this miracle with the fish after Peter has rejected him and fills up the nets. And it says, and they hauled in the nets and there were 353 large fish. I love the precision. And so he goes after him with these guys. And this is what happens. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Point three. In a family or in close relationships, I can, I can fight with you or I can fight for you. It's a great theme in this passage is Abram is always for Lot. Lot has his challenges. Abram has his challenges. But he's always for Lot. He's wanting it to work for him. So when Abram rallies the troops, he goes after this family. He's aggressive in going to rescue people. Now, it was 1959. Fidel Castro was in power in Cuba. Hawaii and Alaska had just been admitted to the Union. Elvis was in Germany in the army, and I was a 17-year-old freshman at the University of Illinois at Cal Berkeley. I had been raised in a strict religious home, and now I'm 17 and I am sowing my wild oats. I tell people today uh, there weren't very many oats, and they weren't very wild by today's standards. They were sort of piddly oats, and uh, you know, I just, but I was tossing them out there. And and I had a 150, I had a 150 cc. Vespa motor scooter uh, Some of you guys are Harley guys and, you're, and I'm saying hey Vespas are coming back Don't be putting them down here so I, And I rode this I could go 60 miles an hour in this sucker. And I rode 10 miles every morning Or every day of school over to Cal Berkeley And then I'd come back And I pulled up in front of our house This one, nice, this, this one afternoon A little bungalow in East Oakland, California Went into the house And I couldn't find my mother Now, i had been raised with a theology that the return of Jesus, what they call the second advent of Jesus Christ, when he comes to take believers, that that could happen any time. Like Tuesday afternoon, it could happen. Well, when you walk in and you have that theology and you can't find your mom, that's not good. That's not good. She's gone. I'm here. I'm going to get fried, you know. And so so I try to find my mom and I wander into my folks' bedroom and there's a walk-in closet. And I hear a sound. I walk over, put my ear on. Up against the door and she's on her knees. I can sense where the sound's coming from. And she's praying. She's after me like Abram going after Lot. Dick's being captivated. He may not be captured, but they're taking him away. And I'm going after him. And she was praying for me one of those mom's prayers. Oh, God, don't let Dick do anything more stupid than he's already done. You know, one of the... And here I stand all these years later, in large part because of a mom... Who wasn't willing to let a family member be taken captive. Sometimes there is tension though. You say, is it possible to both fight with and fight for? I would submit that when you fight for somebody, sometimes you do fight with them. Sometimes there is tension because you're trying to protect them or you're trying to keep them from doing stuff you did or falling in the same pits that you stepped in. You're saying you're saying and they're saying, yeah, but I'm my own. Well, you know how it goes. I don't have to tell you that. So sometimes there is the within the for, But you're not against. After the last service, a military fellow came up, retired military and said, let me give you one other preposition against when it's the enemy. You're against them. But sometimes. With your buddies, you're both with them and for them. You fight with them and fight for them at the same time. So Jesus is the model. How does this work now in my life? Well, first of all, Jesus' conflict isn't with you. Jesus' conflict is with the enemy of your souls. Ephesians 6 says there's a war in the heavenlies. We fight not against flesh and blood, but, but forces unseen. And he, he leads the charge. He's the captain, if you will, of the Lord of hosts. He's generous beyond measure. I love that part in Romans 5. That says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While Foth was still trying to be his own God, he takes the hit. I have a friend who says, I believe Jesus went to the cross to set the price on you so high that he would never be outbid. Here is the, here is the person who comes and says, let me, let me show you what generous looks like. Even if you never come to me, just know that the tab has already been paid. Like paying for a hotel room over here, but the person never comes and stays. It's already paid. It's already done. That's how it is. When I'm taken captive, he doesn't hesitate to come rescue me. Scripture says in John, he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And because he's for me, he sends the spirit to live in me for mid-course corrections. Aren't you grateful that the choices you made when you were a teenager or in college or when you were in your 20s, that those don't lock you in? That along the way, his spirit helps make mid-course corrections. Because if I got locked in by those first choices I made, like I'd, I'd be in a different galaxy. I'd be way over there someplace instead of following Jesus with you. So. Let me close. Jesus leads the way. He shows us how this works, like Abram led the way. I'm going to ask my friend, Bob Seal, He doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. Bob, where are you? You're here. Here he is. Let's welcome Bob back, one of the greatest, an... <clears throat> one of the greatest announcement makers in the world. No, no, he's, <laughs> he's great with young people. Have you ever done a trust walk? Uh, once. Once, okay. But never at church on a stage Here's four or five feet in the A trust walk works like this. That I take Bob's hand. He closes his eyes. And then he follows me. Whatever I tell him to do, he does. He just steps right out. And he follows me like this. All right. Freaking me out a little bit. Yeah. You just, you just come around. I'm going to turn you around two or three, four times like this. Okay. You ready? Okay. Good. You ready? All right. Here we go. I'm going to turn you back around this way. Then I'm going to turn off my mic. Come right here. Come this way. Right over here. Right over here. Keep coming. Just step right out. You trust me, right? Pretty much. <laughs> Mostly. Stop. <laughs> Let's hear it for Bobby. Right there. Right. I did that once with 200 men at a retreat outside in a grassy area. They, you know, got a partner and they walked around, then they dropped their hands, and I said, Okay, follow the voice. Well, it's one thing for to have one voice, it's another thing to have 99 other voices talking. That's why I pray for kids and grandkids. Got a thousand voices every day coming at them. So these guys are out there and they're saying, not over there, Harry, over here, you know. So we come back in and we debrief. I said, when did you want to or did you open your eyes when you were following? One guy said, when I felt the tree. (laughs) I said, you felt the tree? He said, yeah, shadow came across, you know, and it felt real. So I opened my eyes. There was a tree 50 feet over there. How many times in following Jesus I open my eyes because I think it's real and it's really not just a shadow. Somebody else said, when I got directions that were imprecise, like you're coming to some stairs sometime soon. (laughs) Not good. Or I got directions too late, like that was a log. (laughs) Aren't you grateful for a God who is precise and always on time? Finally, one older guy, way older than me. He said, that was one of the most exciting things I've done in a long time. I said, why? He said, because for once in my life, someone else was responsible for the obstacles. When you follow this Jesus, the one who gives you choices, the one who comes after you when you step in it, when you follow that Jesus, he takes responsibility for the obstacles. One of my favorite iconic moments with my father was when I was a fifth grader, Horace Mann School. Oakland, California. My buddies and I used to stay after school and play, and one day some ninth graders showed up on the on the playing field. And when you're a fifth grader, a ninth grader is God, you know. And they started shoving us around a little bit. They weren't hurting us, but they scared us. And I ran home at one point, crossed the street, ran into the front yard, just as my dad was pulling up in his nineteen fifty one slant back Chevy. Some of you are old enough to remember that car. And he gets out, he's Two and three quarters or six foot two and three quarters tall and 240 pounds. He said, What's going on, Decker? What's the problem? I said, Noth- Nothing, nothing. He said, Well, you're scared about something. I said, No, no. He said, Tell me. I said, Well, these big kids, they're, they're sort of scared us over there. He said, Well, let's go find them. I said, No, 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 no. I just got away from them. Let's not go find them. He said, Let's go find them. Get in the car. Got in the car. We drove up over the hill and we're coming down and this kid's walking home apparently. My dad pulls the car up to the curb. We get out. He said, "Son, excuse me. Could you come here a minute?" He comes. He said, "Now, Dick says that you and your buddies sort of been scaring him over the." He said, "Oh, we're just fooling around. It's nothing." He said, "Well, they're pretty scared." He said, "We were just kidding." He said, "Okay, that's bygones." He said, "But just let me tell you this," and I'm right here, right? He said, "Um, "The next time if anything like that ever happens again, remember this: that you will not be dealing with Dick. You'll be dealing with me." I'm behind him, cool. Yeah. This is the God who interposes himself between the enemy of our soul and where we are in our lives. And he's dealing with him, not with me. Conflict is a part of life, generosity wins the day. need to choose whether we're going to fight with folks or for them because when you fight for them it looks a lot like jesus let's bow our heads in our hearts father thank you for this moment together in the quiet of this moment just with your heads bowed no one looking around there may be some of us here who say you know in my family right now it could be your immediate family could be extended we we have some things there there are a couple of situations or something that just burdens my heart or weighs heavy on me and I need prayer and I'd like you to pray for me as we close this time and you'll just slip a hand up and say, it's like that in my family. Just slip a hand up, hold it up just for a moment all over the sanctuary, all over this. Yes. You just put it back down. I see you. There may be some here who say, I'm like Lot. I'm held, I'm held captive by stuff or things or things or something. And I want to be free. And I want to start being free today. And I'd like you to pray for me too. And you just slip your hand up. No one's looking except me. Yep, yep, yep. I see you. Yep. Father, you have seen these hands. You know them. You know their lives better than they know them. I pray for these with family situations that you would give them such a measure of your insight and your patience and your kindness and wisdom that they can become a positive influence in a difficult situation. And for those here who say I'm captive to something, some situation some wrong relationship, something. I pray for freedom for them starting even now. Not in the name of Richard Foth or Timberline Church, but we pray for freedom that shackles would fall away in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the creator of the universe, the healer of mankind. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Let that start today. In Jesus' name we